us pray. Lord God, it's impossible on our own. It is possible with you. Help us to tell the difference. Amen. Please be seated. So low, can't get under it. So high, can't get over it. So wide, can't get around it. Gotta get through that door. So I've done a good deal of church-based work trips in my day. You know, the kind where you mow the lawns of the elderly or fix the houses that have been destroyed in disasters. How many of you have been on that kind of a work trip before, maybe many times? And how many of you, on, when you've been on those work trips, have heard somebody, maybe a fellow helper, say, that trip made me realize just how blessed I am. That trip made me realize just how much I have. I'm so grateful for what I have as a result of that trip. Does that sound familiar? I've heard it every single time, every single time. And sometimes it's me that's saying it or thinking it. The paraphrase, the shorthand of that sentiment is, there but for the grace of God go I. And that's not to say that that feeling of gratitude isn't real, that thanksgiving isn't an actual prayer, it's just to say that those things might not be blessings. They might not be rewards. And this is the harsh truth that our young man learns today in the Gospel of Mark. And it's the harsh truth for all of us who can identify with that young man who have many possessions, who have wealth, or privilege, or opportunity, in short, it's the harsh truth of all who are formed to be first. So the rest of this sermon is dedicated or directed at those of us who have been formed to be first, as that rich young man was. If you do not find yourself in that category, you are free to listen in. Now, this young man was not a bad person. He is not the villain of the story. He's actually kind of sweet. I mean, maybe a little naive, but he's devout. He's keeping those commandments, and that's no small thing. He is righteous. His heart is in the right place. And he knows that inheriting everlasting life, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, is a good thing to want. If we were to describe him today, we might say he was a good person who believed in God and wanted to go to heaven. But he didn't take that for granted. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus and asked this teacher, who seemed to know a lot about it, if there was anything else he should do in order to be assured that he would be guaranteed God's favor forever, eternal life. I don't think he quite realized who he was talking to. 
I don't think he quite realized what he was asking. Because he was working under the assumptions that he had been formed in about what it means to be good in the eyes of God. Good fortune and wealth was a sign that you were doing things right by God. He had checked the boxes and he had the evidence. And that's not a habit that's limited to first century Christianity. But still, for some reason, this man wanted more assurance. I wonder if what Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of God had made this man feel just a little uneasy about his assumptions. So the idea that God is king and there being this future time where God would reign over all, that's part of Israel's understanding. That's not new. And the promise that the righteous would inherit God's life, that was not new. But Jesus seemed to tell this story in a different way. As though the kingdom of God was something that was unfolding right under people's feet. As though it was something you had to seek. As though maybe the way in was different from what this man had assumed. As though maybe anybody could get in. And so here he is kneeling in the dirt in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he loves him. I gotta wonder if that divine gaze, that double-edged love of God, wasn't Jesus's predominant answer to the man's question. Before you do, you must be. You must be loved by God. You must let God love you. But the love of God is not passive. It behaves just like the word of God that we heard about in that passage from Hebrews today. Indeed, I think they are one and the same. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before God, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare in the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. When Jesus is done looking at that man with love, Jesus knows exactly what this man is holding on to and exactly what he lacks. And he lacks nothing. Meaning he lacks emptiness. He lacks spaciousness. Room for the kingdom to enter in. What he has is keeping him from what God has for him. Now I wonder if this isn't Mark's kind of wonky version of the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. Mark doesn't have that list of blesseds the way Matthew does and Luke in those Gospels. 
But I think there are the ingredients here. So this young man sees himself as richly blessed. He has many possessions. And he uses the phrase, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is like saying, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And who in those lists of blessed, who gets the kingdom of God? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, it's the poor who receive the kingdom of God. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, the rich aren't listed as being blessed. The first aren't mentioned either. So this passage from Mark should make us squirm a little bit along with that rich young man. If we have many possessions, or if we're used to being among the first. Now a good test of whether you fit in this category is to just imagine Jesus talking to you in this way. Jesus looks at you with love and says you lack one thing. Just take everything you have and sell it and give it to give your money to the poor and follow me. Now just pay attention right now to the anxiety level that you might be feeling at that moment. That's the indicator. That can't be the requirement, can it, <laughs> to get into the kingdom of God. If we were poor, we wouldn't have it to give away. And if we were poor in spirit, we wouldn't blink if it were demanded of us. Jesus is working a real reversal here on this man's assumptions and our assumptions on what everlasting life entails and what it means to be blessed, and what God's love for us might cost us. Now, I think for faithful people who have been formed to be among the first, eternal life feels sort of like what comes after a long and prosperous life. You know, it's, it's our reward, another possession to look forward to, sort of like retirement. But here, Jesus makes a very cutting point that this is not what it's about. And it's not the possessions that get in the way. It's not just the wealth. It's the love of it. It's the hold it has. It's the way wealth forms a habit of being first. The one thing that the young man lacks, that I know that I lack, is the will to put that down and to follow Jesus empty into the kingdom of God. This man of privilege can't buy his way in. He can't enter it on his own merit, his own righteousness. He can't use his blessings to pry open the door. With God, all things are possible because that's who lets us into the kingdom. Now, I don't think the man realized he was kneeling right at the doorway of eternal life, right at the entrance of the kingdom of God. Why do you call me good, asks Jesus, if you don't really know who and what I am? Over and over, the message of the scriptures is that the righteous practices, the faithful 
faithful acts, the following of the commandments are all activities that are meant to express the covenant of love with God. They are meant to shape our hearts into ones that deeply love God and neighbor more than ourselves. And if they don't do that, they won't help us enter the kingdom of God. And that offer of eternal life with such a God will shock us and disturb us and send us sad away. But I don't think that man's sadness is the end of the story. I think we assume that this man rejected Jesus' offer. And we assume that he did not make it into the kingdom. But I think because his heart was so troubled, and because Jesus' word was working in him like a two-edged sword, I want to believe that he gave that some thought about what it would take to give up all those things. I think it would have been very hard for him, but not impossible. And that's my hope for us. What must we do to inherit eternal life? We must die. We must die to an old way and start living into a new one. Because right now, the world we've made under that old way is not working. And somehow, those of us who have been formed to be first have got to figure out how to step to the back of the line. I see this. I see it in our racial repair work, in our economic justice work, in our work on transforming oppressive systems. Those of us who have been formed to be first have long dominated the conversation on what the solution should be without really seeing ourselves as part of the problem. This gospel says we got to set that down. we got to give that up. And frankly, I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not sure how we do that exactly in a system that has been so profoundly and thoroughly stacked to our advantage. That reversal of power and privilege and resources required to truly right all that has been wronged over such a long time, that seems impossible. My prayer lately has sounded a little bit like well, then who can be saved? And I find myself clinging to Jesus's answer. For mortals like you, Barb, it's impossible, but not for God. Which puts us not in the realm of miracles, but of grace. That God-given, spirit driven power to do God's will when all indications are that it's not going to work. That's what we should be praying for. That's what we should be asking for, the grace to be last. That may be the one thing we lack, a firm grip on God's grace. But we're going to have to empty our hands in order to pick it up. We gotta clear a space in order to have somewhere to keep it. In the end, it may be the only possession we need 
as we take our place at the back of the line that is following Jesus into the kingdom of God. Solo. Solo.